Chapter 10 of Recollections of the Civil War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Nelson. Recollections of the Civil War by Charles Dana. Chattanooga and Missionary Ridge. Thomas succeeds Rosecrans in the Army of the Cumberland. Grant Supreme at Chattanooga. A visit to the Army at Knoxville. A Tennessee Unionist Family. Impressions of Burnside. Grant against Bragg at Chattanooga. The most spectacular fighting of the war. Watching the first day's battle. With Sherman the second day. The moonlight fight on Lookout Mountain. Sheridan's Whiskey Flask. The third day's victory and the glorious spectacle it afforded. The relief of General Burnside. With Grant, I left Nashville for the front on the morning of the 21st. We arrived safe in Bridgeport in the evening. The next morning, October 22nd, we left on horseback for Chattanooga by way of Jasper and Walden's Ridge. The roads were in such a condition that it was impossible for Grant, who was on crutches from an injury to his leg received by the fall of a horse in New Orleans some time before, to make the whole distance of 55 miles in one day. So I pushed on ahead, running the rebel picket lines and reaching Chattanooga in the evening in company with Colonel Wilson, Grant's Inspector General. The next morning, I went to see General Thomas. It was not an official visit, but a friendly one, such a visit as I very often made on the generals. When we had shaken hands, he said, Mr. Dana, you have got me this time, but there is nothing for a man to do in such a case as this but to obey orders. This was in allusion to his assignment to the command of the Army of the Cumberland. The change of command was received with satisfaction by all intelligent officers. So far as I could ascertain, though, of course, Rosecrans had many friends who were unable to conceive why he was relieved. They reported that he was to be put in command of the Army of the Potomac. The change at headquarters was already strikingly perceptible, order prevailing instead of universal chaos. On the evening of the 23rd, Grant arrived, as I stated in my dispatch to Mr. Stanton, wet, dirty, and well. The next morning he was out with Thomas and Smith to reconnoiter a position which the latter general had discovered at the mouth of Lookout Valley, which he believed, if it could be taken possession of and at the same time if Raccoon Mountain could be occupied, would give us Lookout Valley, and so enable us again to bring supplies up the river. In preparation for this movement, Smith had been getting bridges ready to throw across the river at the mouth of the valley, and been fitting up a steamer to use for supplies when we should control the river. The Confederates at that time were massed in Chattanooga Valley, south of Chattanooga. They held Missionary Ridge to the east and Lookout Mountain to the west. They had troops in Lookout Valley also, and their pickets extended westward over Raccoon Mountain to the river. South of the river, at Brown's Ferry, were several low mammalons. Smith's idea was to surprise the Confederate pickets here at night and seize the position in time to unite with Hooker, who in the meantime should be ordered up from Bridgeport by way of Shell Mound. Whiteside, and Wahatchee. That night, Grant gave orders for the movement. In fact, he began it by sending Palmer's division across Walden's Ridge to Rankin's Ferry, where he was to cross and occupy Shell Mound, thus guarding Hooker's rear. Hooker he ordered to march from Bridgeport on the morning of the 26th. I went to Bridgeport on the 25th to observe Hooker's movement, but found he was not there, and would not be ready to march the next morning as ordered. Hooker came up from Stevenson to Bridgeport on the evening of the 26th. He was in an unfortunate state of mind for one who had to cooperate, fault-finding and criticizing. 
No doubt it was true that the chaos of the Rosecrans administration was as bad as he described it to be. But he was quite as truculent toward the plan that he was now to execute as toward the impotence and confusion of the old regime. By the next morning he was ready to start, and the troops moved out for Shell Mound about half-past six. By half-past four in the afternoon we arrived at Whiteside Valley. Thence the march was directly to Wahatchee. Here there was an insignificant skirmish, which did not stop us long. By the afternoon of the 28th we were at the mouth of the Lookout Valley, where we found that General Smith, by an operation whose brilliancy cannot be exaggerated, had taken the Mamelons south of the river. The only serious opposition to our occupancy of the position came that night, but the enemy was successfully repulsed. Our forces now held Lookout Valley and controlled the river from Brown's Ferry to Bridgeport. The next day supplies were started up the river. At first they came no farther than Kelly's Ferry, which was about ten miles from Chattanooga. This was because the steamer at Bridgeport could not get through the Suck, an ugly pass in the mountains through which the river runs. But on the night of the 30th we succeeded in getting our steamer at Chattanooga past the pickets on Lookout Mountain and down to Brown's Ferry. She could pass the Suck, and after that supplies came by water to Brown's Ferry. Within a week after Grant's arrival we were receiving supplies daily. There was no further danger of the Army of the Cumberland being starved out of Chattanooga. The Confederates themselves at once recognized this, for a copy of the Atlanta Appeal of November 3rd which reached me said that if we were not dislodged from Lookout Valley our possession of Chattanooga was secure for the winter. It was now certain that we could hold Chattanooga, but until Sherman reached us we could do nothing against the enemy and nothing to relieve Burnside, who had been ordered to unite with Rosecrans in August, but had never got beyond Knoxville. He was shut up there much in the same way as we were in Chattanooga and it was certain that the Confederates were sending forces against him. The day after Grant arrived, we had good evidence that the Confederates were moving in large forces to the northeastward of Chattanooga, for heavy railroad trains went out in that direction and light ones returned. Deserters to us on the morning of the 25th reported that a large force was at Charleston, Tennessee, and that fully 5,000 mounted infantry had crossed the Tennessee River above Washington. That night it was noticed that the pickets on Lookout Mountain, and even down into the valley on the Chattanooga side, were much diminished. We judged from this that the enemy had withdrawn both from the top of the mountain and from the valley. There were other rumors of their movements toward Burnside during the next few days, and on November 6th some definite information came through a deserter. A northern man who had lived in Georgia before the war and had been forced into the service. He reported that two divisions had moved up to Tennessee some time ago, and confirmed our suspicion that the troops had been withdrawn from Lookout Mountain. He said it was well understood among the Confederates that these forces were going by way of Loudon to join those which had already gone up the river, to cooperate with a force of Lee's army in driving Burnside out of East Tennessee. Grant's first move to meet this plan of the enemy was to direct Sherman, who had been trying to rebuild and hold the railroad from Memphis as he marched forward, to abandon this work and hasten up to Stevenson. Grant then considered what movement could be made which would compel the enemy to recall the troops sent against Burnside. Grant was so anxious to know the real condition of Burnside that he asked me to go to Knoxville and find out. So on November 9th I started, accompanied by Colonel Wilson of Grant's staff. The way in which such a trip as this of Wilson and mine was managed in those days is told in this letter to a child, written just before we left Chattanooga for Knoxville. I expect to go all the way on horseback, and it will take about five days. About seventy horsemen will go along with their sabers and carbines to keep off the guerrillas. Our baggage we shall have carried on pack mules. 
These are funny little rats of creatures, with the big panniers fastened to their sides to carry their burdens in. I shall put my bed in one pannier and my carpet bag and India rubber things in the other. Colonel Wilson, who is to go with me, will have another mule for his traps, and a third will carry the bread and meat and coffee that we are to live on. At night we shall halt in some nice shady nook where there is a spring, build a big roaring fire, cook our supper, spread our blankets on the ground, and sleep with our feet toward the fire, while half a dozen of the soldiers, with their guns ready loaded, watch all about to keep the rebels at a safe distance. Then in the morning we shall first wake up, then wash our faces, get our breakfasts, and march on, like John Brown's soul, toward our destination. How long I shall stay at Knoxville is uncertain, but I hope not very long, though it must be very charming in that country of mountains and rivers, and then I shall pray for orders that will take me home again. We were not obliged to camp out every night on this trip. One evening, just about supper time, we reached a large stone house, the home of a farmer. The man, we found, was a strong unionist, and he gave us a hearty invitation to occupy his premises. Our escort took possession of the barn for sleeping, and we cooked our supper in the yard, the family lending us a table and sending us out fresh bread. After supper, Wilson and I were invited into the house, where the farmer listened eagerly to the news of the Union Army. There were two or three young and very pretty girls in the farmer's family, and while we talked they dipped snuff, a peculiar custom that I had seen but once or twice before. We reached Knoxville on the 13th, and I at once went to headquarters to talk over the situation with Burnside. This was the first time I had met that general. He was rather a large man physically, about six feet tall, with a large face and a small head, and heavy side whiskers. He was an energetic, decided man, frank, manly, and well-educated. He was a very showy officer. Not that he made any show, he was naturally that. When he first talked with you, you would think he had a great deal more intelligence than he really possessed. You had to know him some time before you really took his measure. I found that Burnside's forces, something like 33,000 men of all arms, were scattered all the way from Kentucky, by Cumberland Gap, down to Knoxville. In and about Knoxville he had not concentrated more than 12,000 to 14,000 men. The town was fortified, though unable to resist an attack by a large force. Up to this time Burnside and his army had really been very well off, for he had commanded a rich region behind Knoxville, and thence had drawn food and forage. He even had about 100 miles of railroad in active operation for foraging, and he had plenty of mills and workshops in the town which he could use. After a detailed conversation with Burnside, I concluded that there was no reason to believe that any force had been sent from Lee's army to attack him on the northeast. As we had heard in Chattanooga, but that it was uncertain that Longstreet was approaching from Chattanooga with 30,000 troops. Burnside said that he would be unable long to resist such an attack, and that if Grant did not succeed in making a demonstration which would compel Longstreet to return, he must retreat. If compelled to retreat, he proposed, he said, to follow the line of Cumberland Gap and to hold Morristown and Bean Station. At these points he would be secure against any force the enemy could bring against him. He would still be able to forge over a large extent of country on the south and east. He could prevent the repair of the railroads by the rebels, and would still have an effective hold on East Tennessee. A few hours after this talk with Burnside, about one o'clock in the morning of the 14th, a report reached Knoxville that completely upset his plan for retreating by Cumberland Gap. This was the news that the enemy had commenced building bridges across the Tennessee near Loudoun only about 25 miles south of Knoxville. Burnside immediately decided that he must retreat, 
and he actually dictated orders for drawing his whole army south of the Holston into Blunt County, where all of his communications would have been cut off, and where on his own estimate he could not have subsisted more than three weeks. General Park argued against this in vain, but finally Colonel Wilson overcame it by representing that Grant did not wish Burnside to include the capture of his entire army among the plans of his operations. He then determined to retreat toward the gaps, after destroying the workshops and mills in Knoxville and on the line of his march. Before we left, however, which was about six o'clock in the morning of the 14th, General Burnside had begun to feel that perhaps he might not be obliged to pass the mountains and abandon East Tennessee entirely. He had even decided to send out a force to attack the enemy's advance. When Wilson and I reached Lenoir's station that morning on our way to Chattanooga, we discovered that the enemy's attack was not as imminent as Burnside feared. Their bridges were not complete, and no artillery or cavalry had crossed. From everything I could learn of their strength, in fact, it seemed to me that there was a reasonable probability that Burnside would be able to hold Knoxville until relieved by operations at Chattanooga. We found that our departure from Knoxville had been none too soon. So completely were the Confederates taking possession of the country between Knoxville and Chattanooga that had we delayed a single day, we could have got out only through Cumberland Gap or that of Big Creek. We were four days in returning, and Mr. Stanton became very uneasy, as I learned from this dispatch received soon after my return. War Department, Washington, D.C., November 19, 1863. Honorable C. A. Dana, Chattanooga. Your dispatches of yesterday are received. I am rejoiced that you have got safely back. My anxiety about you for several days had been very great. Make your arrangements to remain in the field during the winter. Continue your reports as frequently as possible, always noting the hour. Edwin M. Stanton Colonel Wilson and I reached Chattanooga on November 17th. As soon as I arrived, I went to Grant's and Thomas's headquarters to find out the news. There was the greatest hopefulness everywhere. Sherman, they told me, had reached Bridgeport and a plan for attacking Bragg's position was complete and its execution begun by moving a division of Sherman's army from Bridgeport to Trenton, where it ought to arrive that day, threaten the enemy by Stevens Gap. The remainder of that army was to move into Lookout Valley by way of Whiteside, extending its lines up the valley toward Trenton, as if to repeat the flanking movement of Rosecrans when he followed Bragg across the Tennessee. Having drawn the enemy's attention to that quarter, Sherman was to disappear on the night of the 18th and encamp his forces behind the ridge of hills north of the Tennessee, opposite to Chattanooga, and keep them there out of sight of the enemy during the 19th. That same night a bridge was to be thrown across the river just below the mouth of Chickamauga Creek, so that on Saturday morning, November 20th, Sherman's command would be across before daylight, if possible. As soon as over he was to push for the head of Missionary Ridge, and there engage the enemy. At the same time that Sherman's wing advanced, Granger, with about 18,000 men, was to move up on the left of the Chattanooga lines and engage the Confederate right with all possible vigor. Hooker, who had been in the Lookout Valley ever since he joined the army in November, was to attack the head of Lookout Mountain simultaneously with Sherman's attack at the head of Missionary Ridge, and, if practicable, to carry them out. It is almost never possible to execute a campaign as laid out especially when it requires so many concerted movements as this one. Thus, instead of all of Sherman's army crossing the Tennessee on the night of the 18th and getting out of sight as expected behind the hills that night, a whole corps was left behind at daylight, and one division had to march down the valley on the morning of the 20th in full view of the enemy, who now understood, of course, that he was to be attacked. Bragg evidently did not care to risk a battle, for he tried to alarm Grant that afternoon by sending a flag over, and with it a letter, saying, 
as there may still be some non-combatants in Chattanooga, I deem it proper to notify you that prudence would dictate their early withdrawal. Of course, we all knew this was a bluff. On the morning of the 20th, a heavy rain began, which lasted two days and made the road so bad that Sherman's advance was almost stopped. His march was still further retarded by a singular blunder which had been committed in moving his forces from Bridgeport. Instead of moving all the troops and artillery first, the numerous trains which had been brought from West Tennessee were sent in front rather than in the rear of each division. Grant said the blunder was his, that he should have given Sherman explicit orders to leave his wagons behind. But no one was so much astonished as Grant on learning that they had not been left, even without such orders. Owing to these unforeseen circumstances, Sherman's rear was so far behind on the morning of the 23rd, three days after Grant had planned for the attack, that it was doubtful whether he could be ready to join the movement the next day, November 24th. It was also feared that the enemy, who had seen the troops march through Lookout Valley and then disappear, might have discovered where they were concealed, and thus surmise our movements. On account of these hitches in carrying out the operations as speedily as Grant had hoped, it was not until November 23rd that the first encounter in the Battle of Chattanooga occurred. It was the beginning of the most spectacular military operations I ever saw, operations extending over three days and full of the most exciting incidents. Our army lay to the south and east of town of Chattanooga, the river being at our back. Facing us, in a great half-circle, and high above us on Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge, were the Confederates. Our problem was to drive them from these heights. We had got our men well together. All the reinforcements were up, and now we were to strike. The first thing Grant tried to do was to clear out the Confederate lines which were nearest to ours on the plain south of Chattanooga, and to get hold of two bald knobs, or low hills, where Bragg's forces had their advance guard. As the entire field where this attack was to be made was distinctly visible from one of our forts, I went there on the 23rd with the generals to watch the operations. The troops employed for the attack were under the immediate orders of Gordon Granger. There were some capital officers under Granger, among them Sheridan, Hazen, and T.J. Wood. Just before one o'clock the men moved out of their entrenchments, and remained in line for three quarters of an hour in full view of the enemy. The spectacle was one of singular magnificence. Our point of view was Fort Wood. Usually in a battle one sees only a little corner of what is going on, the movements near where you happen to be but in the Battle of Chattanooga we had the whole scene before us. At last, everything being ready, Granger gave the order to advance, and three brigades of men pushed out simultaneously. The troops advanced rapidly, with all the precision of a review, the flags flying and the bands playing. The first sign of a battle one noticed was the fire spitting out of the rifles of the skirmishers. The lines moved steady along, not halting at all, the skirmishers all the time advancing in front, firing and receiving fire. The first shot was fired at two o'clock, and in five minutes Hazen's skirmishers were briskly engaged, while the artillery of Forts Wood and Thomas was opening upon the rebel rifle pits and camps behind the line of fighting. The practice of our gunners was splendid, but it elicited no reply from the camps and batteries of the enemy, about a mile and three-quarters distant, and it was soon evident that the Confederates had no heavy artillery, in that part of their lines at least. Our troops, Rapidly advancing toward the knobs upon which they were directed, occupied them at twenty minutes past two. Ten minutes later, Samuel Beatty, who commanded a brigade, driving forward across an open field, carried the rifle pits in his front, the occupants fleeing as they fired their last volley, and Sheridan, moving through the forest which stretched before him, 
drove in the enemy's pickets. Sheridan halted his advance, in obedience to orders, on reaching the rifle pits, where the rebel force was waiting for his attack. No such attack was made, however, the design being to secure only the height. The entire movement was carried out in such an incredibly short time that at half-past three I was able to send a telegram to Mr. Stanton describing the victory. We took about two hundred prisoners, mostly Alabama troops, and had gained a position which would be of great importance should the enemy still attempt to hold the Chattanooga Valley. With these heights in our possession, a column marching to turn Missionary Ridge was secure from flank attack. The Confederates fired three small guns only during the affair, and that tended to confirm the impression that they had withdrawn their main force. About four o'clock in the afternoon the enemy opened fire from the top of Missionary Ridge, the total number of cannon they displayed being about twelve but nothing was developed to show decisively whether they would fight or flee. Grant thought the latter, other judicious officers the former. That evening I left Chattanooga to join General Sherman, who had his troops north of the river concealed behind the hills, and ready to attempt to cross the Tennessee that very night, so as to be able to attack the east head of Missionary Ridge on the night of the 24th or the morning of the 25th. Sherman had some 25,000 men, and crossing them over a river as wide and rapid as the Tennessee was above Chattanooga seemed to me a serious task, and I watched the operations of the night with great curiosity. The first point was to get a sufficient body of troops on the south bank to hold a position against the enemy. The Confederates had pickets for a long distance up and down the Tennessee, above Chattanooga, and then from there commenced building the pontoon bridge by which the bulk of the men were to be got over. About one o'clock in the morning the pontoon boats, which had been sent up the river some distance, were filled with men and allowed to drop down to the point General Sherman had chosen for the south end of his bridge. They landed about 2.30 in the morning, seized the pickets, and immediately began to fortify their position. The boats in the meantime were sent across the river to bring over fresh loads of men. They kept this up until morning. Then a small steamer which Sherman had got hold of came up and began to bring over troops. At daybreak some of the boats were taken from the ferrying and the bridge was begun. It was marvelous with what vigor the work went on. Sherman told me he had never seen anything done so quietly and so well, and he declared later in his report that he did not believe the history of war could show a bridge of that length, about 1,350 feet, laid down so noiselessly and so short a time. By one o'clock in the afternoon, November 24th, the bridge was done, and the balance of his forces were soon marching briskly across. As soon as Sherman saw that the crossing was insured, he set the foremost of his column in motion for the head of Missionary Ridge. By four o'clock he had gained the crest of the ridge and was preparing for the next day's battle. As soon as I saw Sherman in position, I hurried back to Chattanooga. I reached there just in time to see the famous moonlight battle on Lookout Mountain. The way this night battle happened to be fought was that Hooker, who had been holding Lookout Valley, had been ordered to gain a foothold on Lookout Mountain if possible, and that day, while I was with Sherman, had really succeeded in scaling the side of the mountain but his possession of the point he had reached had been so hotly disputed that a brigade had been sent from Chattanooga to aid him. These troops attacked the Confederate lines on the eastern slope of the mountain about eight o'clock that evening. A full moon made the battlefield as plain to us in the valley as if it were day, the blaze of their campfires and the flashes of their guns displaying brilliantly their position and the progress of their advance. No report of the result was received that night, but the next morning we knew that Bragg had evacuated Lookout Mountain the night before and that our troops occupied it. After the successes of the two days, a decisive battle seemed inevitable, and orders were given that night for a vigorous attack the next morning. I was up early, 
sending my first dispatch to Mr. Stanton at half-past seven o'clock. As the result of the operations of the day before, Grant held the point of Lookout Mountain on the southwest and the crest of the east end of Missionary Ridge, and his line was continuous between these points. As the result of movement on November 23rd, our lines in front had been advanced to Orchard Knob. The bulk of the Confederate force was entrenched along Missionary Ridge, five to six hundred feet above us, and facing our center and left. From Chattanooga we could see the full length of our own and the enemy's line spread out like a scene in a theater. About nine o'clock the battle was commenced on Sherman's line on our left, and it raged furiously all that forenoon, both east of Missionary Ridge and along its crest, the enemy making vigorous efforts to crush Sherman and dislodge him from his position on the ridge. All day, while this battle was going on, I was at Orchard Knob, where Grant, Thomas, Granger, and several other officers were observing the operations. The enemy kept firing shells at us, I remember, from the ridge opposite. They had got the range so well that the shells burst pretty near the top of the elevation where we were, and when we saw them coming we would duck. That is, everybody did except Generals Grant and Thomas and Gordon Granger. It was not according to their dignity to go down on their marrow bones. While we were there, Granger got a cannon. How he got it I do not know and he would load it with the help of one soldier and fire it himself over at the ridge. I recollect that Rollins was very much disgusted at the guerrilla operations of Granger, and induced Grant to order him to join his troops elsewhere. As we thought we perceived, soon after noon, that the enemy had sent a great mass of their troops to crush Sherman, Grant gave orders at two o'clock for an assault upon the left of their lines. But owing to the fault of Granger, who was boyishly intent upon firing his gun instead of commanding his corps, Grant's order was not transmitted to the division commanders until he repeated it an hour later. It was fully four o'clock before the line moved out to the attack. It was a bright, sunny afternoon, and, as the forces marched across the valley in front of us as regularly as if on parade, it was a great spectacle. They took with ease the first rifle pits at the foot of the ridge as they had been ordered, and then, to the amazement of all of us who watched on Orchard Knob, they moved out and up the steep ahead of them and before we realized that they were at the top of Missionary Ridge. It was just half-past four when I wired to Mr. Stanton. Glory to God! The day is decisively ours. Missionary Ridge had just been carried by the magnificent charge of Thomas's troops, and the rebels routed. As soon as Grant saw the ridge was ours, he started for the front. As he rode the length of the lines, the men, who were frantic with joy and enthusiasm over the victory, received him with tumultuous shouts. The storming of the ridge by our troops was one of the greatest miracles in military history. No man who climbs the ascent by any of the roads that wind along its front can believe that 18,000 men were moved in tolerably good order up its broken and crumbling face unless it was his fortune to witness the deed. It seemed as awful as a visible interposition of God. Neither Grant nor Thomas intended it. Their orders were to carry the rifle pits along the base of the ridge and capture their occupants. But when this was accomplished, the unaccountable spirit of the troops bore them bodily up those impracticable steeps. In spite of the bristling rifle pits on the crest, and the thirty cannons enfilading every gully, the order to storm appears to have been given simultaneously by General Sheridan and Wood because the men were not to be held back. Dangerous as the attempt appeared to military prudence. Besides, the generals had caught the inspiration of the men, and were ready themselves to undertake impossibilities. The first time I saw Sheridan after the battle I said to him, why did you go up there? When I saw the men were going up, he replied, I had no idea of stopping them. The rebel pits had been taken and nobody had been hurt, 
and after they had started I commanded them to go right on. I looked up at the head of the ridge as I was going up, and there I saw a Confederate general on horseback. I had a silver whiskey flask in my pocket, and when I saw this man on top of the hill I took out my flask and waved my hand toward him, holding up the shining, glittering flask, and then I took a drink. He waved back to me, and then the whole corps went up. All the evening of the 25th the excitement of the battle continued. Bragg had retreated down the Chickamauga Valley and was burning what he could not carry away, so that the east was lit by his fires, while Sheridan continued his fight along the east slope of Missionary Ridge until nine o'clock in the evening. It was a bright moonlight night, and we could not see most of the operations as plainly as by day. The next morning Bragg was in full retreat. I went to Missionary Ridge in the morning, and from there I could see along ten miles of Chickamauga Valley the fires of the depots and bridges he was burning as he fled. At intervals throughout the day I sent dispatches to Washington, where they were eagerly read, as the following telegram sent me on the 27th shows. War Department, Washington City, November 27, 1863. Honorable C. A. Dana, Chattanooga, Tennessee. The Secretary of War is absent and the President is sick, but both receive your dispatches regularly and esteem them highly, not merely because they are reliable, but for their clearness of narrative and their graphic pictures of the string events they describe. The patient endurance and spirited valor exhibited by commanders and men in the last great feat of arms, which has crowned our cause with such a glorious success, is making all of us hero worshippers. P. H. Watson, Acting Secretary of War. The enemy was now divided. Bragg was flying toward Rome and Atlanta, and Longstreet was in East Tennessee besieging Burnside. Our victorious army was between them. The first thought was, of course, to relieve Burnside, and Grant ordered Granger with the Fourth Corps instantly forward to his aid, taking pains to write Granger a personal letter, explaining the exigencies of the case and the imperative need of energy. It had no effect, however, in hastening the movement, and a day or two later Grant ordered Sherman to assume command of all the forces operating from the south to save Knoxville. Grant became imbued with a strong prejudice against Granger from this circumstance. As any movement against Bragg was impracticable at that season, the only operations possible to Grant, beyond the relief of Burnside, were to hold Chattanooga and the line of the Hawassi, to complete and protect the railroads and the steamboats upon the Tennessee, and to amass food, forage, and ordnance stores for the future. But all this would require only a portion of the forces under his command, and, instead of holding the remainder in winter quarters, he evolved a plan to employ them in an offensive winter campaign against Mobile and the interior of Alabama. He asked me to lay his plan before Mr. Stanton and urge its approval by the government, which, of course, I did at once by telegraph. I did not wait at Chattanooga to learn the decision of the government on Grant's plan, but left on November 29th, again with Colonel Wilson, to join Sherman, now well on his way to Knoxville, and to observe his campaign. I fell in with Sherman on November 30th at Charleston, on the Hawassi. The Confederate guard there fled at his approach, after half destroying the bridges, and we had to stay there until one was repaired. When we reached Loudoun on December 3rd, the bridge over the Tennessee was gone, so that the main body of the army marched to a point where it was believed a practicable ford might be found. The ford, however, proved too deep for the men, the river being 200 yards wide and the water almost at freezing point. We had a great deal of fun getting across. I remember my horse went through, swam through, where his feet could not strike the ground, and I got across without any difficulty. I think Wilson got across, too, 
but when the lieutenant of our squad of cavalrymen got in the middle of the river, where it was so deep that as he sat in the saddle the water came up to his knees almost, and a little above the breast of the mule he rode, the animal turned his head upward toward the current, at that place very strong, and would not stir. This poor fellow sat there in the middle of the stream, and, do his best, he could not move his beast. Finally they drove in a big wagon, or truck, with two horses, and tied that to the bits of the mule, and dragged him out. Colonel Wilson at once set about the construction of a trestle bridge, and by working all night had it so advanced that the troops could begin to cross by daylight the next morning. While the crossing was going on, we captured a Confederate mail, and first learned something authentic about Burnside. He had been assailed by Longstreet on the 29th of November, but had repulsed him. He was still besieged, and all the letter writers spoke of the condition in the town with great despondency, evidently regarding their chance of extrication as very poor. Longstreet, we gathered from the mail, thought that Sherman was bringing up only a small force. By noon of December 5th we had our army over, and, as we were now only 35 miles from Knoxville, we pushed ahead rapidly, the enemy making but little resistance. When Longstreet discovered the strength of our force he retreated, and we entered Knoxville at noon on the 6th. We found to our surprise that General Burnside had fully 20 days' provisions, much more, in fact, than at the beginning of the siege. These supplies had been drawn from the French broad by boats, and by the Seaverville Road. The loyal people of East Tennessee had done their utmost through the whole time to send in provisions and forage, and Longstreet left open the very avenues which Burnside most desired. We found ammunition very short, and projectiles for our rifle guns had been made in the town. The utmost constancy and unanimity had prevailed during the whole siege. From Burnside down to the last private, no man thought of retreat or surrender. The next morning after our arrival, December 7th, Sherman started back to Chattanooga with all his force not needed there. Colonel Wilson and I returned with him, reaching Chattanooga on December 10th. Everything in the Army was now so safe, quiet, and regular that I felt I could be more useful anywhere else. So the day I got back I asked leave of Mr. Stanton to go north. I did not wait for his reply, however. The morning of the 12th Grant sent for me to come to his headquarters and asked me to go to Washington to represent more fully to Stanton and Halleck his wishes with regard to the winter campaign. As the matter was important, I started at once, telegraphing Mr. Stanton that, if he thought it necessary for me to go, orders would reach me at any point on the railroad. End of chapter 10